You are now listening to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast. Season 2, new intro, let the story begin. One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin. Hold me down. What's going on, world? It's your host, Greg E. Hill, the culture change agent. And man, I'm excited to be here on episode 34. I'm talking about we over 50,000 downloads in. Y'all showing a lot of love via Twitter, Facebook, everything. And and I like to say, before I even get into the episode, thank you so, so much for your support. Thank you for your emails. I know my response time is horrible, but I'm working to do better. So thank you for your emails. For those that want to be on the show, that are recommending people to be on the show, you can email me at greg at greggyhill.com. Thank you so much. I also like to say a couple, few housekeeping things before I get into the podcast. One. I will be forming a small group to work on the show for season three because we're going to be making a lot of changes season three. So I will be putting some feelers out there on my website, greggyhill.com, or my Twitter, or my Instagram, Saul Greggy Hill, to formulate a small team to work on the show, improvements, get more audience engagement, um, our selection of guests, the whole nine. So if you're interested, please stay tuned. Probably the next episode, I'll be dropping more information on it. Second thing is, also, I am be switching the date of the Minority Trailblazers Summit. More details will be coming. I am also putting a, a, together a board for that. So look out for my website, on social media, whatnot for it. Boom. Third, leave a review, please. <laughs> we are one of the top-rated millennial podcasts for people of color in the whole country. Over 50,000 downloads, 100 different countries are listening, thanks to you, not me, but thanks to you. But we still around 90 reviews online, so if you have been listening to this podcast faithfully, or even one episode, or even just now, and you like the energy of the intro, please be sure to leave a review. I actually just uploaded a video online, how to do it, if you're if you're on iTunes 4, so leave a review. Share with your friend because I know everybody needs this kind of information and whatnot. And I look forward to you continue rocking with you on this journey as we head into season three. We got like eight episodes less of this, but as we head into season three, as we embark on our first ever Minority Trailblazer Summit and all that good stuff. And thank you for all those that have supported the book. I appreciate it. We have tripled the sales of my second book, Remember Your Genius Again, One Man's Journey from Homeless. To hero to humble. So I, I'm thank y'all for that. If anybody's listening in is interested in the book, you can go to greggyhill.com backslash podcast book and you get a special discount for being a podcast listener. Matter of fact, this is what I'll do. For the first five people that screenshot themselves leaving a review on the podcast, I will send you a book free of charge. The book is normally $19.99, but the first five people to screenshot it and send me an email. At greg at greggyhill.com, I will give them a shout out live on air and I will send them a personal signed copy of the book because I want to make sure y'all leave them reviews. All right, so that's enough of that. And I am excited about today because we have a game changing interview from a game changing guest, and I'm just going to get right into it. On this show, we interview young, successful minorities in a variety of fields to educate empower and inspire our current and future generation of leaders and as y'all already know i got a show for you today i guarantee it's gonna be a classic i mean as you've been following the podcast we've had over 30 plus episodes interviewing comedians activists teachers entrepreneurs but we have never ever 
had a president of university on the show, and today we are about to cross that line. So I'm going to do a brief bio about this guest, and when I tell you, I probably could have read five, ten pages, and it still wouldn't be enough. So I'm going to give you all a little snippet, which is going to be still long, but y'all just got to hear this stuff. So our guest today currently serves as the president the president of Harristow State University, and at 39 is one of the youngest serving presidents in the country at any four-year institution. And he's only 39 years old, but he already brings 16 years of experience in higher education, working in five different school districts, and within five months, check this, check this guy, within five months of his arrival to Harristow State University, he raised over a million dollars in student scholarships. Prior to his appointment as president of Harristow State University, he served as senior vice president of administration and student services at Bethune-Cookman University in Florida, overseeing a staff of over 170 individuals. His successes include oversight of the multi-million dollar renovation of the institution's residence halls. And prior to Bethune-Cookman, he was associate dean of students at Rose College in Memphis where it was oversight over student affairs, judicial affairs, student activities, Greek life, new student, orientation, all of that. He's also held positions at Western Carolina and at Delta State University. So I'm like I said, he's 39 and has been all across the country, Memphis, North Carolina, and now in St. Louis. He's received several awards for his work in higher education and in the community and was most recently inducted into his alma mater's Hall of Fame, which is crazy. He's earned a bachelor's degree in education and a master's degree in sociology from Delta State University, and he has earned his doctorate in educational leadership with a specialization in higher education from Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. So without further ado, I would like to introduce the president of Harristow State University, Dr. Dewan Warmack, to the Minority Trailblazer podcast. Welcome to the show. I mean, thank you so much, Greg. Thank you for having me on here, man. I'm excited to be here. Man, I'm excited too because I did I did my research, did my background. I'm like, yo, this 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 podcast is gonna be one for the ages. Just coming from where you come from. So, as we always do it, my show goes like this: we start off with the past because everybody that we had in our our, our podcast is is often been succeeded in a lot of different areas. We've been doing amazing things, but we want to we want to start before all the fame, before the press, before all that stuff start about you. Then we go into the present round. We talk about present day what you do and ask really questions about that. And then we talk about the future because you know as culture change agents, you have to be visualize the future in order to get there. So as customary for all our guests, I love to start the show off with a quote. I wake up every morning at 4:30 in the morning. I run 5 miles and I send a quote to over 100 individuals. So I like to start off with a quote to get the motivational ball rolling. So President Warmack, could you share with our audience a quote and a story on how you apply that quote to your everyday life. Oh yeah, thank you again, Greg, for having me on here, man. Um, let me let me let me say this, my, and I guess the quote um, for me would be: "People see the glory, but don't know the story." Mm. And so, you know, you read the bio on paper, and all of those things sound amazing, man. And um, and so, I may have to take you on the road with me mm. one day, you know, to 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 give me the introduction, make me sound like I'm really somebody. In the <laughs> <laughs> but no, on a serious note, the quote would be: "People see the glory, but don't know the story." You know, and I say that, man. I am. I've been very blessed in my career to be. You know, when I was uh, selected two years ago um, as the president, I was the youngest president in the country. Um, and you know, coming from my, my humble background, man, I just, I, I just said, no, it couldn't be nothing but God. So the bio reads well, but what it doesn't tell is how it all started. You know, I, I'm born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, and, um, I'm first generation college student at its core. So for me, I didn't think college was even an option and to be now a president of a university is, is is supernatural. And so I think of when I, you know, I say first generation, my mom raised five of us in the most impoverished area of Detroit, um, five boys and one little brother now who's serving a 43 year sentence in the penitentiary, another little brother who had multiple run-ins. My mom had a GED. None of my brothers, my oldest brother had a high school diploma, but no one had ever gone to college. All the rest of my brothers didn't have any, um, you know, a high school diploma and have GEDs. And so I'm in the middle. So mm-hmm. it wasn't that I was just that intellectually inclined. It wasn't that I wasn't just that smart, but, you know, uh, God had a different plan for me. Mm-hmm. But I, it wasn't always that way. You know, and I, you know, we'll probably get into this more in a minute, but I was, you know, I finished high school with a uh, one point. 
seven GPA. And, uh, and not that I wasn't intellectually inclined because I was at school every day. I spent a significant amount of time doing all the things I shouldn't have been doing, mm-hmm. you know. And so, uh, and so then, you know, going through high school, having a chance to see a guidance counselor, never because I was told, you know, I'm a war mat. Mm-hmm. So I, at the end of the day, you know, you're not college material. You, you'll be just like the remainder members of your family. And so well, God had a different plan. So, we'll, But looking on the bio, reading that paper, mm-hmm. you'll never know that, you know, so. Wow, man. Wow. So you already segued into our first round. We talk about the past. So just to dive and jump right in. What would you, what do you think changed? What was significant and special outside, of course, God's will in your life that you as the middle child, being that your mother just got a high school. She, did she she received a GED, right? She had a GED. Yep. She had mm-hmm. a GED. Your family didn't have a history of college. So what changed or what jumped out in your life to kind of have you go a different direction? Well, I think it's the power. Once again, like I said, God, but I think it's and, and then, you know, I didn't grow up with a strong religious faith. So I say these things now knowing that it couldn't have been me, you know. And so growing up, you know, I, I would say a couple of things that were main factors. I was I was fortunate to be a student athlete. So that kept me uh-huh. um, away in a lot of ways. So I was I was a pretty decent athlete. But there was also a couple people who believed in me in a way that I didn't believe in myself. So when I graduated, you know, I had no college offers. I had no, so I was, I was actually on the block, man, you know? Um, and you know, one of my coaches pulled up next to me and said, you're better than this. And I want you to come play in this tournament with me. And I'm a sore loser. I'm a, I'm a competitor. Mm -hmm. And so playing the tournament and it was a coach that came to recruit me and said, Hey, I'd love for you to come play at my community college. And and if you can come play at my community college. And so I, I get there and then and this is where the light came on. Not that I wasn't smart. You know, when I got to the community college, I'd said to the coach, you know, um, I went to sort of all black high schools, K through 12. Mm-hmm. So this was this, this my community college was all white. And I sat in a classroom where um, my first day of class, it was only two African-Americans in this uh, philosophy course. And the guy got my got to my last name, which is, you know, Warmack and said, hey, um, you know, Warmack, uh, you know, I'm like, oh, he know my name already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, he's like, you must be one of those student athletes. You won't be here after the first um, three weeks of class. Mm. And so at that point, it you know, the light came on. And so I, you know, pushed and persevered and um, and sat in the front of the class, got an A. And but then again, because I got an A, he said I cheated, so I had to take the next class, next, I mean, next test in front of the dean, and the next the test, second test again in front of the dean. But I finished my first semester of college in my first time in my life with a 3.4 GPA and, and never looked back because I was challenged in a way by somebody who didn't look like me, who didn't think I was capable because I was a student athlete. But, you know, I always had the intellectual capacity, mm-hmm. but I channeled it in the wrong way. Wow. So what sport was this? I played football and basketball in college. Oh, wow. Wow. And that was a Delta State. Delta State, that is a... Is a so, so, so no. So at, at Schoolcraft College is where I went to junior college. Ah, okay. I played basketball there. So I was a junior college, first team, all conference, uh, all regional team. Uh, you know, so I was highly sought after. So I finished there and went to Delta State mm-hmm. and, and played at Delta State in Division Two, Elite Eight. Um, was captain. You know, we won a lot of games, you know. Mm. So knowing what you know now, like with all your experience, your wealth of knowledge, what would you go back and tell a younger version of yourself? Well, I think it's, and you know, I think that's what I spend a lot of time doing now mm-hmm. on my you know, personal time mentoring. And that's why I decided to serve and maybe get to this later as well mm-hmm. at a place like Harrisville State University, because as a historically black college, but it's also to our mission provides access and opportunities for people like me that, you know, we may I may not have the best GPAs, best things starting off, but it was given a chance. And then I was able to succeed. And so for me, as it's it's tough to tell somebody that's 14, 15, 16, mm-hmm. that you should do this, you should do that. But they're in you know, they're a product of the environment. All they know is what they see. Mm-hmm. And so we don't know what we don't know. So what I try to do is be a beacon of light and say, hey, I've lived it. You know, I know what it's like to flip a nickel to a dime, a mm-hmm. dime to a quarter, a quarter to a half, how to make the make the work work, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And so when I share the real narrative, they're like, wow, this brother ain't just talking. He He's lived it. And mm-hmm. so what I'm able to say to them, so let me help you not make mistakes that I had to make that allowed me to be where I'm at today. And so those are the type of dialogue I, I'm able to go back and reach. So I spend a lot of time, a significant amount of time in, you know, urban communities where um, challenges are happening. Mm. 
And another question before we kind of get to the, the money round of as far as talking about Harris Stowe, talking about HBCUs and everything else. What led you down the journey into higher education? Like, when did you find out that was your calling and what, what, what happened? What year was that? Right. And that's interesting. So I was so I I went to Delta State, mm-hmm. um, which is in Cleveland, Mississippi. No family below the Macy Dixon line. So I caught a Greyhound bus. I had twenty five dollars and that was it. You know, and so I, I got there and was like I said, I was an athlete. And so I had a, a great experience. But I. Um, I was perceived as a leader, so I became very active on, on, on campus. I became a member of student government. I became RA, became a leader in my fraternity, you know, and so all these things that I would have never channeled my energy to growing up in Detroit. When I get into Mississippi, you know, I was able to get engaged and also speak out on a, quite a few injustices that were there, not being from the Mississippi Delta region. Mm-hmm. A lot of things that I thought weren't were not, I guess, you know, um, ethically and morally right. I had a different worldview, so I was able to speak out. So become, I became a very strong student advocate and an activist. Um, and so through my time on student government and when I graduated and walked across the stage, my president said, we're not letting you go back to Detroit. And I think you'll be a, you can have the potential to be a college president one day. And I said to him, if I have to do anything you're doing, I don't want that job. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and so, I mean, I was engaged. The president, uh, I tell people, they knew me. Um, because I spent a lot of time in there challenging the social norms, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. You know, so if there was racial injustice, if there was um, issues around any student complaint, I was the one that would go have the conversation with the administration and talk about how do we come up with solutions. And so I think it's um, I had no clue. I did it all as a student leader. Like I said, RA, leader in the fraternity, leader in um, everything on campus captain of the basketball team when, you know, so that, you know, I, I was engaged in the student life area. Well, my, my first job out, my president hired me as a coordinator of student life. And so I began wow. doing everything that I was doing as an undergrad, but I found out I can get paid for it. And so, um, you know, it became a, a career that I fell in love with, you know, and so I was uh, fortunate to work hard. I, I would say all the time I talked about the academic performance, but I also, anyone who knows me knows that I, I would just never be outworked. You know, I was five foot nothing, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, captain of one of the best basketball teams in our school history, you know, competed on all levels. And um, and I applied that athletic uh, experience to my work. You know, I may not have been the smartest. I may not, you know, like I said, 17 years later now, I'm a college president. So Wow, that's that's crazy. And our last question of the past round until we get into the, to the present day is, from your journey, from growing up Detroit, Michigan, and poverty, having all these siblings, not really having too too many role models, what is the what is the one thing from that journey that if you utilize as a strength for your success today? I think it's when you come when you come from that background, you learn how to survive. You know, um, you survive in any condition. You survive, and so I tell people all the time: if I can survive that. I can survive anything. And the second piece is what I failed to uh, mention earlier. You know, these things you can't do alone. And I was blessed to have a, which I call a, you know, guardian angel, my brother by the name of Rodney Deal, who poured in me once again and saw something I didn't see in myself. So when I'm at junior college, it's an hour away from Detroit. I didn't have a car. So we had an apartment. So this guy gave me his car to drive. Um, He would catch the bus in the winter. Um, to work would allow me to drive the car to school uh, all week. He would fill it up with gas because he saw something in me. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about it, I don't ever believe in giving back. I believe in paying it forward, you know. And so through all of that, and he's been with me still, who I consider a mentor, a father figure to this day, um, has never asked for anything back. And mm-hmm. so I was like, man, what do I owe you? And, it, and this thing was always help the next person. You know, and so um, so I think, you know, for me was just understanding, you know, not allow myself to be a product of the environment, but also never forgetting where I come from. Mm-hmm. That keeps me hungry and grinding, because when you come from that environment, you know, that that it's it's if you survive there, as I mentioned earlier, you, you have this sort of ideology of, you know, I, I can't go back to that mm-hmm. and I need to work my tail off to ensure that I never go back. Yeah. So what is it like when you go back now to Detroit, Michigan, maybe go on some of the blocks you used to be on or or see the people you used to work with? How how does that how Love. often you go back and how is it? I go back a lot, man. I unfortunately I lost my mom about two years ago. And oh, so man. that was uh, 
you know, really my staple. All of my brothers and everybody are still there. And I, I say this in the most humble way, man. I think because of me being my authentic self, man, I, I still have a ton of sh- a hood cred, you know. Mm-hmm. So I go back and it's nothing but love because, you know, the the, the, the narrative is, yo, if, if you know, if B can make it out, anybody can, you know. And so I'm not one of those that, oh, I'm just president. I'm go back. I'm the same person, man. I'm not preaching to people. And I'm just trying to say, hey, here, it, let me be a beacon of light, you know. So and, and if that if this, if I can be example to the young G's in the hood to the mm-hmm. um, folks that are there, you know, that's good. I mean, and my mom never wanted to leave the hood. So anytime, you know, you go back, she still was planted there. And my brothers are still in the, the same neighborhood in the community. So it's love, man. It's and, and my thing is, you know, and it's celebrated, like, you know, because of, you know, me being in my authentic self. But the flip side is, you know, I think for me, understanding that culture and that environment. So I go back to the neighborhood and really try to be that light. But then, and for me, as I've spoke at like this past year, um, I spoke at three high school graduations in Detroit, mm-hmm. you know, so to, to be able to be able to share, sometimes we don't see people that look like us that mm-hmm. come from where we come from and see that success, you know, cause I, I never saw when I see a brother in a suit or something, they, they were coming to speak about something. They didn't, they, they didn't grow up in my community or my neighborhood. So they didn't really know my struggles. Mm-hmm. So for me to be able to say, here, I'm from right here on Mac and Bewick, born and raised. Um, and so that light comes on like, wow, mm-hmm. he, he from he from the gutter, you mm-hmm. know, and so. But then to be able to talk about you know being, um, you know, focus and, and the power of education and all of those things. So it it, it brings a different set of uh, um, value, you know, because you know, I'm from there. So got you, got you, got you, man. So that was a perfect, perfect pass round. So now let's segue into present day. But I want to talk about before Harrisville University, because I mean Harrisville State University. Because looking at your, your background and your bio, a lot of these positions that you've held, you've predominantly been some of the youngest person at these leadership positions and whatnot. And also a thing that a lot of times on podcasts and whatnot, and I'm glad you alluded to it earlier, we don't highlight some of the biggest sacrifices that we that, that people have to make in their career. So I want you to speak on your, your one and two biggest sacrifices you had to make early on in your career in order to kind of set the paveway to now being a, one of the youngest presidents in all the country. Well, that's a great question. I think it's uh, yeah, I think it's probably two. Uh, for me, um, the sacrifice was because I, you know, was was trying to be a trailblazer to change generations. You know, for me, it was that you know, if you think about grandmother and mm-hmm. all of her children, eight children, then my mother and all of them. so um, and not having that. So I wanted to be that beacon of light for all of my nieces, nephews, children coming after me um, to see the importance of power of education. So I felt like I had to do it for generations. And so the sacrifice was I, I had to um, not do some things that other folks were doing, you know, um, to ensure that those happen. But, but it's also too, from a professional standpoint, I, I became very clear. Sometimes I would have to go to the wilderness to get to where I need to go. And so, um, being from urban core from Detroit mm-hmm. to go to Cleveland, Mississippi, my brother, it was a culture shock, <laughs> shock man. And so, but after that, you know, when I'm uh, granted the opportunity, I'm, I'm 25 and you're right. I was the youngest in every position. So when I became mm-hmm. the director of multicultural, I was the youngest director in the state of North Carolina of a large, you know, state school unit. Mm-hmm. So I was 25 years old then. And so people are like, you about to go to Cullowhee, North Carolina? Where, where is that even on the yeah, map? Uh-huh. And so, um, but for me, I knew I had to sacrifice to get what I wanted, you know? So if I, if I knew I wanted to advance and be a, a college president, well, I had to go where other places where other folks wouldn't go. And so that, that, that for me, I was willing to do that and mm-hmm. do the work that no one else wanted to do mm-hmm. to get to where I wanted to go. And what that meant was sacrificing to family, sacrificing personal relationships because my focus was on my grind Mm -hmm. and not anything else. So I I mean, I I just couldn't allow myself to get distracted from that work. So willing to go to the wilderness Mm -hmm. and also to compromise time with, you know, developing and building a family and things like that as well. Oh, man. So with that being said, though, because I mean, I know you're in your these positions, you're the youngest on it and you probably have, especially in the university system, because it's not like in corporate America or even entrepreneurship where you're young, but you got all the revenue so you can call shots and whatnot. You're in these in these institutions that maybe have faculty that have been serving there for 10, 20 years. You have staff that's been there 10 to 20 years and you come from your background, an African-American man at 25, being a leader. How, like what were some of the challenges? How did you overcome 
some of those challenges early on with maybe you being maybe the youngest on the totem pole, but having directed like responsibility? That's a great question. I think uh, so for me, the big piece was and I think it's it wasn't until probably about four years ago, Greg, I would be um, open to share my story Mm -hmm. because I was so fearful and embarrassed of being um, not what mainstream society thinks that one should be right. Mm-hmm. So but then at that time, here it was, I was this young, young brother, bachelor's master's degree at 21, 22. He's just intellectually inclined. He was a leader. And so I rode that to the wheels fell off because I was embarrassed to really share mm-hmm. really who I was. And so I went in having to prove that, you know, you think of a larger school like that, like I said, being the youngest and a director, people questioning, why is he even here first off? But then secondly, does he have the core competencies or the skill sets to do the job? And so for me, you know, those were two pieces that I always felt um, that I, intellectually I, I, I would be able to hold my own. But then secondly, no one was going to outwork me. So it would start off like, oh, um, needing other folks to validate what I said. Mm-hmm. But then after four or five months in the job, it was like, oh, this young brother, knows, he, he knows what he's doing. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and so. Um, then I became the person that folks were referring to, but I was fortunate in every one of these jobs. I had amazing mentors, you know, Uh. and so I worked for supervisors who were not intimidated by my youth, but who also celebrated to help me elevate, to go to the next level. So my supervisor, Jane Adams Dumford, who who was at Western Carolina, took a chance of hiring me young where other folks wouldn't have taken that chance. And for her, it was an opportunity for her not to allow her ego to get involved, but to say, let me mentor this young brother and help him get to where he needs to be. And, and so that she did. So she had she had been assistant vice president there, had a voice. And so she was a voice for me when I didn't have a voice and um, and also helped me understand how the temperament was important not to fight some battles. Some battles wasn't worth fighting and not having to validate all the time of who I was. The work would speak for itself. And so having those mentors there to do that. And so when I did that, like she she knew that um, once again, I was going to be the first one there and the last one to leave mm-hmm. and put the work in to not disappoint her. Well, after a couple of years, I was promoted there. And so promoted to another higher senior level position, larger responsibilities. And um, that's 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 how it was. Oh man, that's 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 crazy, man. And what is your your take on authenticity and why it matters so much? Right, I mean that, that's a, that's a amazing question, Greg. I think you know, um, as I said before, early in my career, I would not be my authentic self. I wanted to be what I thought higher education academy thought I should be, and so um, a person with my background, um, just historically was not supposed to be in the leadership roles that I was in. Mm -hmm. So I operated out of fear if I shared that. So, um, but then again, I became very clear about when I began to grow personally and spiritually about going to a place where I can serve and be my authentic self, right? Mm -hmm. And so I've become very clear about who I am and whose I am. And I will not go serve because this is for me, I've learned like I wasn't called to the pool pit. You know, um, <laughs> I have a, I have a cussing spirit. So I, that wouldn't be me. Um, I have, a, you know, I still have, a, you know, I'm a work in progress, but I do know what, you know, I think people get it conflicted where I do know my ministry is to serve the underserved, underrepresented population. Mm-hmm. So when I became clear about that, I couldn't be I could not show my authentic self. And say this was my ministry because then I will miss who I'm called to serve. Mm-hmm. So my story and my testimony allows them to see something in me that they may see in themselves. And so, so, so aligning that, my passion and my compassion had to align. So for me, I won't go to a place where I can't be my authentic self. So if I can't, so if like, so if you, like I said, I joked with you earlier, mm-hmm. I have on true religion jeans, Air Force Ones, and a, a, a Harris Stowe t-shirt today, <laughs> and, you know, and so that, but that's, that's me. And so I explained that to the, to the, to the board and to everyone else. I'm going to give you, but I also know when it's time to put my uniform on as well. Mm-hmm. Something we talk about, you know, I think sometimes in our urban communities and said on your podcast based on your listenership if you have younger folks some of our you know in, in our in our hoods you know it's called code shifting you know we have to be able to code shift you know and so um i know when it's time if i'm going out to cultivate a relationship with a multi-million dollar donor i'm going suited and booted because i know that's the time for that but my 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 main constituent base are my students 
So I have to connect with them where they are. Mm-hmm. So I need to be at a place. So if I was working at a different type of institution, maybe I couldn't be this. So that's why I'm clear about where I go and serve. As stated earlier, at this institution, I'm able to serve um, the people who I think, the student population who I think I'm called to serve from a ministry perspective. And I can do it as my authentic self um, and be that. And so, and, that, and that's the, what I've you know, chosen to do. Um, in life, you know, I think it's at a point where God has blessed me abundantly, you know, with work. I'm, you know, I'm by far not rich by no stretch, but I've <laughs> earned more money than any I can ever imagine in my life. My goal was to, you know, become a coach and, you know, make $40,000, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And really, and so God has superseded that in ways. So, you know, for me is I'm unwilling to compromise who I am for the sake of, for anything really, you know, so I understand that. And but within that, within that context, being able to know that I represent this university at all time, that this is an institution that I have to be able to um, ensure that the brand is protected. So I would never do anything to destroy the brand. And so often you may hear on some of these things, I'm speaking from the views of Dewan Mormack, not the president of Harrisville mm-hmm. State University. You know, I think it's uh, so understanding, you know, contextually where, where and when, to be able to do that. So I and, and once again, it's not something easy. I didn't, I didn't really become into this space until I was around in my, you know, early thirties. I'm like, you know, God, you know, um, enough of the faking, you know, I, I gotta, my people are hurting, you know? And so put me in a place where I can serve my people and be my authentic self. And I, you know, that real transformation happened at Bethune, you know, I, I was able to go there and, you know, and be in, in some ways free, and, you know, um, and, 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 and be authentically who I And so at this point, when, when the people come after me now for jobs, I'm like, you, you, you sure you want this, you know, <laughs> this, this is, this, you know, yeah, and so yeah. I, you know, but, but I say that and from a competency perspective, from a research perspective, from, um, uh, understanding best practices in higher education, I, I'm cool with that. So I've gone to Harvard program. I've gone to ask. So I'm you know, put me in put me in a room with President Obama. I'll use superfluous terms to define the level of intellect. You put me in the hood with little Ray Ray and Jaja. I'm able to understand that, that with the, when they're talking about that work, cutting the bricks and understanding that. So um, I thank God for being allowed me to be in a position to be able to reach multiple audiences to ensure that the work is done. Mm, being a chameleon, chameleon, chameleon. So let's get to the nitty gritty stuff. Okay. Um, Cause right now, you know, HBCUs are facing a variety of different challenges like enrollment decline, high turnover, um, state and federal funding changes. So upon accepting this position at Harris State University, can you share with our audience some, some of the unique challenges you faced upon your arrival and how you, how you overcame them? That's a great question. So we agree in higher education, we have this thing called iPads data. And so it's a federal government way of calculating data related to institutions. So you can go and find any information regarding school enrollment and school graduation rates on iPad. And so when this search firm approached me about this position, first off, I was living in Daytona Beach, Florida, mm-hmm. you know, living in LPGA, um, wife and two year old daughter at that time. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm like, um, you know, now we're in, living a good life in Florida. I'm loving my institution. Uh-huh. Why would I go to St. Louis, Missouri? <laughs> you know, it snows there. You know, I, my Midwest life is over. I've been a Southern boy since uh-huh. I went on, you know, my Southern tour. And so I was like, no, nah, I'm not interested. And I began to look at some of the data. And I'm like, wow, man, this place is in some trouble. They've dropped an enrollment, you know, uh, 14 years straight. They've, um, they've, they've had uh, budget shortfalls. They've, you know, had to lay off staff members. Man, this is this this is this is cold this, red. Right. I'm like, I'm not gonna touch this. And so um, you know, I was talked to my president who was a mentor, so I told the search firm no twice. And, and then finally was like, you know, just explore it. You don't you don't ever know, you know, um, you know, you you've never applied for presidency, you know, do it for the experience. And I'm like, well, Doc, I'm not interested in St. Louis. So I actually go for the interview and I come to campus and I fall in love. And I fall in love with the students because I saw my and I was able to have conversation and dialogue, and the students were really, um, from my from my humble view, you know, uh, lacking some of the leadership characteristics that I that I um, 
that I had. So I was the challenges were real. You know, um, you know, I, I, I said, you know, man, God, is this really where you want me to come and serve? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I think it's, you know, when like I said, we had dropped an enrollment, you know, 15 years straight, 14 years straight. We had, you know, struggled with some of our um, academic programs. It was 12 degree programs. So for me, we were able to come in with a very clear vision. So in our first year, we had, you know, um, was able to increase our degree programs by, you know, about 108%. We went from 12 degree programs to 40, uh, about 41 majors and minors, um, wow. all to be approved by the state. We had record enrollment my first year here. We grew grew by um, 24.4%. While the institutions were struggling to our first year enrollment in an 8.6% overall enrollment based on an intentional enrollment management strategic strategy our team we put in place. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, we're projecting a substantial increase this year in our enrollment, you know, filling our residence halls. And so that made we be able to build a value proposition. So I was able to go out then and solicit support from major donors to help me bring in the top quality students. And so you mentioned earlier, because of um, I am I come from student affairs, I'm a student-centered president, student-centered, student-focused, I, I believe in hearing what they need and what they want. Mm-hmm. So I do, and I hate to give away my strategy because then other folks are numbers, <laughs> but I am on a road recruiting. I am at the fairs because I want the parents to know that they have access to me, you know, and so I'm I'm on social media. They students know they can find me on Instagram, on Twitter. Um, parents know this is you email me directly. I don't have the, the the status quo position, prompt and circumstance. I check my own emails, you know, and so um, it's so for me. I once again I, I operate it as my authentic self, and for that people maybe can see that, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I'm able to go out to these school systems, school districts, speak at these graduations, and talk about speak truth. And truth um, into the present, and that allows them to say, "Okay, well, maybe this is maybe where I want to send my kid." And then, so we're at a place just to give numbers for you. We, as you mentioned, some of HBCs are struggling, and so we have to have you know think about doing some things differently. So when I arrived, we had a total of fifteen hundred applications for the mm-hmm. entire year. That was the second highest applications in school history. Well, my after my first year, um, we last year we had about thirty five hundred applications. So we wow. You know, double those. But right now we're up about, we're up to about 4,900 applications at this point. And we're only going to yield a class of 600, you know? Mm-hmm. So when we're going to at a place where it was a place where people were not coming third, fourth choice to, this is a top choice for people right now, you mm-hmm. know? And so, uh, so we've been intentional. I, we, we came in with a, a very intentional, um, strategy, you know? And so when we created this for, um, pillars of excellence, and so we we operate and lead off this right now from our strategic plan. It's a it's a, we call it our uh, excellence agenda. You know, excellence in academics, and so we want to be excellent there. So we grow in our degree programs. First time in 159 year history, we'll we got legislation passed last year to offer master's degrees. Mm-hmm. You know, so that will be you know once again game changing for this region. There's about. Um, about uh, 2.5 million residents in the greater St. Louis region. But there's about 577,000 who are African-American, but there's about 370,000 who are 18 or over, which gets problematic is only 14% of those have a bachelor's degree. So that's 85% of the African-American population in this St. Louis region um, have a bachelor's degree. But what was more alarming when I arrived, I was able to see less than, um, you know, or or 95% of the African-American population didn't have a uh, master's degree. And so, but there's only one institution in this region whose mission mandated by the state and the federal government to serve that population. So I thought it was sort of absurd that we couldn't offer masters, but 95% of the African-American population didn't have a master's. And so mm-hmm. that strategy we employed and we're, we're excited to legislate and pass Senate Bill 334, which allows us to offer graduate programs for, um, you know, the first time in school history. Wow. That's, that is, that is phenomenal. That is phenomenal. That's phenomenal. And what would, what would be the number one thing that Harris Stowe State University has been able to kind of differentiate themselves and grow outside of hiring you? <laughs> right, right. Um, I think it's, we, we, we're trying to change the narrative, you know, um, unfortunately, um, which I think a lot of our HBCUs, the mindset was, you know, we're here, they come, they will come. But unfortunately, if you've seen over the past 30 years, you know, a lot of our mainstream um, institutions 
have provided, you know, access to the underrepresented minority population and have these amenities that our students are able to go. And so a lot of our HBCUs were founded, you know, early 1900s. And and so our facilities, our, uh, our physical plant, our landscape, you know, are sometimes older because we just don't have the resources that other institutions have. Mm-hmm. And so what we've been able to do is try to be intentional of build our value proposition, you know. And so how do we, you know, not, it, oh, oh, it's, oh, it's us, you know, they're, they're cheating us as an HBCU, but to say, if you don't support us, this is what happens. And so so I could have gone and say, oh, because of the only historically black college, you are, you know, violating our rights to not have, you know, master's degrees. Or I can say, hey, if you provide me an opportunity to offer master's degrees, here's how we can change the economic climate here in the greater St. Louis region. More educated African-Americans makes a better workforce, better taxpayers, better tax base, and let us be the catalyst to help um, provide this educational opportunity that will change our economic landscape. So changing the narrative you know, and so not all the time saying, oh, they're not doing this for HBCUs. So how do we build our value proposition? You know, and so how what 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 is like corporations? What is their return on their investment? Mm-hmm. So right now, I'll give an example. I'm going to every corporation here to say I will I'm willing to produce the most outstanding minority graduates that can be excellent, um, employable as soon as they graduate from me. If you have X amount of dollars that you spend on recruiting and diversity initiatives, you don't have to leave St. Louis. I will provide you the best business administration graduates. I'll provide you the best criminal justice graduates. Tell me how many you need. We'll provide that for you. So how do you, you know, so changing the strategy, you know, um, understanding that, you know, we have to take our value proposition to them to be able to ensure that we have something to bring to the table. I think that's that's really important just in general with anything you're trying. If you're trying to make change or grow, don't don't say, oh, woe is me, but go into think, OK, what really value and I'm am, am I adding? And I, I'm glad that y'all have took that approach. And I know you speak about you, you. It's a lot of community face and community focus and issues you are doing. So could you speak on the, the role that your institution plays within their community of St. Louis? Right. Um, so I, w- I was fortunate to come behind a president that was here 32 years oh, wow. who had built a, um, you know, he arrived, it was one building, you know, one major and he was able to build it, you know, and so had a really strong community tie. So I was able to inherit that that notion of strong community relations. And so but, but from a practical perspective, you know, I, I started here July the 1st, um, 2014. And my introduction to the state of Missouri one month later was August 9th, Mike Brown tragedy. Mm. And so that was my introduction. So this is my first presidency. I'm opening up a school. We're 13 miles from the Ferguson area. Um, and not just 13 miles. At that point, about 45 percent of my students were from that, that, that community. And so, you know, it began to impact us in a different way. And so I called a meeting the day it happened. I said, so as the only historically black college in this area, in this region, you know, Lincoln is here as well, but a couple hours away. And so as only HBC in this region, it's important that we um, we have a civic and a more responsibility to be a solution base for this this tragedy. Mm-hmm. And so um, announced immediately that we will serve as the intellectual think tank to help the community heal. So from every major town hall, from every community event, we hosted it on our campus. We became the voice for the unvoiced, you know, and so we allowed a platform for, from, you know, the former chief of police, you know, to um, ground zero protesters, you know, to be at a place to have those conversations. But for me, that wasn't enough. And so we, we, we created that piece there. So I challenged our institution to think differently about our civic and moral responsibility as a historically black college. But then secondly, how do we get wrong? We want to focus on how do we help stop this violence and how do we help this community heal at this time? So when I arrived in July, I remember reading an article that talked about these felon school districts in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, unfortunately, the Ferguson Florence school district where the Mike Brown tragedy happened was listed at one of those, one of those felon school districts. So what we didn't see with the mainstream media, what we didn't see is one of the most challenged school districts in the state because of this unrest, missed two weeks of instruction. Oh, wow. So how can, you know, how can we systemically say we want to move this needle where the students, the kids that need it to most in this underrepresented, underserved community 
missed two weeks of instruction and they're already listed as one of the failing school districts. So for me, I thought that was a huge problem. I fundamentally believe education is the key and the answer. I'm a living witness. So I said that what we're going to do, we're going to go adopt two of the elementary schools. So we went out, we started, we had started a very strong African-American male program, which we sent 50 black males. The first day of school was the day of Mike Brown's funeral. So instead of going out, chasing the cameras, we decided to go to the school systems to walk them, all of the kids back to school. So we wore shirts on our shirts, all of our 50 black males. It was our first day of school. So instead of going to class, I allowed them to go join wow. me to go out to welcome these elementary school kids. And on our shirts, it said... I am dot, 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 dot. And so all this time, everybody would have thought, oh, Mike Brown. And for me, on the back, it said a Harris Stowe African-American male scholar. Okay. And so for for changing the image of the mainstream media. So here you have 50 young black male students from Harris Stowe standing at the door before they even can walk in the door. They like build a, like a, like a warm-up line. So for every kid that got off that bus, every kid, every parent that dropped them off, we high five and we hugging them, you know, saying, welcome back to school. We're excited about you being back. And these parents are crying because this hadn't been an image they had been seeing. And mm-hmm. so the kids are crying. So from that, the principal's like, right, we need y'all out here every day, you know? And so we're like, well, we, from a scale perspective, we can't do this every day. So what we did is adopt it. So we sent about 50 black males out to those schools to read, um, mentor, to help them work with their literacy on a regular basis. And so really, you know, that that's our community. And so, but now, you know, now every school wants us out there. So we can't, you know, if we don't have that many males to go out and do it, but, <laughs> so we're, but we're intentional about, you know, how do we be the change agents that we want to see? So like now, part of what we're having tough conversations now around mm-hmm. what do we do with all the things that are happening in this world yeah so on, in light of that in wake of the recent tragedies and whatnot like what is what is your university's take on like student activism well i i mean i fundamentally believe in you know student activism i a couple of things in academy you'll hear about you know uh academic freedom for faculty okay and so i, I I believe in that. And so same way I believe in student activism for students. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's when we talk about shared governance in higher education, you know, that that means valuing the opinion of all of your stakeholders, students, faculty and staff. And so I I, I was a student activist in a, in a major way, you know, and so I, I get the importance of it. So what, what we do is before activism, I think it's leadership training, leadership development has to happen. So that's infused in every single thing we do and not just from an activist perspective, but how do we train future leaders? And so as we train and developing them, we, we encourage our students to, to, to stay, take a stand and have a voice for what they want to have a voice for, you know, and so not trying to muffle, not trying to discourage them and being able to empower them to make sound decisions related to um, w- whatever that mm-hmm passion may be. So, 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 you know, if, if it's, if it's activism around, um, injustice issues with policing, let your voice be heard, but let your voice be heard in a meaningful way that strategy allows you to get a, the, the outcome that you want, you know? And so, um, prime example. So the day of the verdict, mm-hmm. um, for Mike Brown, you know, everyone was waiting by the TVs and, um, you had, all of the unrest. So the students decided to host a, a watch party to watch it. And this was they decided to do. And and so at this point, you know, I, I must admit, I'm slightly nervous because you don't know where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. And in the watch party. So it, 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 it comes back, um, you know, it decided not to prosecute and um, indict them. Well, people hit the roof in this city. Our students made the conscious effort after, you know, some of them had been out protesting before and all of that, made the conscious effort. I look outside my window. I see 150, 200 students circling our quad, holding hands to pray. Wow. Conscious choice for them, right? You know, they, they could have done a variety of other different, other different things, but that's what they decided to do. And so powerful. So I walked out to join them and I asked, so I said, so why, why this? You know, um, you know, and, and one of our student leaders, who's actually now our current SGA president, said, you know, um, if we don't do this, who will? You know, and so, um, so I, you know, I think it's, you know, and then they same students that were out there, you know, um, marching, protesting before, but that's a conscious effort that they decided to do, and that's their choice. Oh wow, man, that's 
that's powerful. Um, before I kind of switch to the future round, first I'd like to say thank you for your efforts and thank y'all. I mean, thank you for your students for their efforts, man. That is that is a testimony itself because I know around that time people were looting. There was a lot going on, so to have those individuals take their own right, take their own stand, that's huge. That you have a university that encourages that and that allows that to take place. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So we're talking. We're now we're getting to our last round. We're just talking about the future. And I just got a couple questions for you. Um, with your success thus far at Harris State University, what does the vision look like? Do you want to have rapid growth, or do you want to kind of continue to be a smaller college campus? Like, what is what's the future hold for Harris State University? Well, I think a couple of things. I think we 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 do have a growth strategy that's in place, mm-hmm. but it's also too. I value the small, intimate environment, and so we want to grow. We want to strategically grow. You know, so we're um, with our enrollment management plan. We're clear about. You know, we 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 don't want to be over five thousand students. You know, we want to be small enough, intimate enough, where I can walk across campus, high five. You know, get uh, dap to my students and have conversations, and and I know them and they know me, and our faculty keep our classroom space small to be able to do that. But we also want to grow our online base, you know, and so how do we increase our presence from a global perspective where it's not an infrastructure need or to growth that we'd be able to provide a Harrisville education globally. And so so our growth strategy will be um, multi-tier, multi-prone um, from that. But we don't want, we have no aspirations to be a large research school. We have no aspirations to be, um, you know, a, a super, super, mega institution we understand in our niche and want to do what we do well exceptional Mm, i love that i love that and what do you think is what do you what is your take on the future of higher education and hbcus in general well i think i i i will say this and i talked about our success but i i I will go on the record to say i believe our hbcus are under attack you know and if we're not careful and um you know there's there's folks that will argue and say we live in a post-racial society. There's no longer a need for historically black colleges, and I would say, you know, that's that's probably one of the most absurd statements that I've that I that I hear. You know, I said so. There's only about a it's about three thousand five hundred college universities across the country, and it's only about a hundred of us HBCUs. And so, um, so when you talk about not a need, how many times do you ever hear there's not a need for um, no longer a need for a predominantly white institution? How many times do you hear there's no longer a need for a Jesuit institution? How many times do you hear there's no longer a need for all female school? So why do you think, you know, we don't need an HBC? We all have unique missions. We all have unique parts. And so there is a need. And I don't know how post-racial society it is considering everything that's happening in the country right now. But um, I think it's so there's a there's a there's an intentional and a strategic attack when you look at the funding that's happening to our HBCU, some of the things that um, so we just have to be conscious and woke and stay woke mm-hmm. uh, and be mindful of those things. And hopefully our alumni base and our, and our, um, our strong constituents will support our, our, our institutions. What happens is our alumni giving rate is so low. And what, what we need to understand is sometimes it's not about um, the amount we give, but it's just about giving, you know, and it may not be money. You know, it's time, effort. I explained to someone the other day, I worked at this one institution um, you know, what made that institute, it was small school, small, but large endowment. What made it so, so great was their alumni. You know, they made sure the people graduating after them were placed in internships. They made sure if they were in corporations, they were getting jobs for those kids in there. So we just need to, our, our HBCU alumni base, no matter what HBCU attended, you know, it's a small community. And so how do we stay unified enough and together enough to support each other to be successful? And I think I think that's happening on a large scale. There's a group of us. Um, uh, uh, I don't want to make sure I want to use the right word. Um, presidents that um, who convene on a regular basis. You know, it's uh, I don't want to make this an ageism deal, but it's most presidents under 50 at HBCUs. And we, we meet on a regular basis, like twice a year. Mm-hmm. And we talk about some of these challenges and what do we do to be unified? Mm-hmm. So it's not a competition, you know. So I'll use uh, Lincoln University down in Missouri, which is our sister institution. Um, we're only two HBCUs in the state of Missouri. So if a student comes and say, hey, you know, not a good fit for me at Harris-Stowe, I am not ashamed to say, hey, there's another amazing HBCU down there in Jeff City. I think you'll be, be looking for a bigger school. You're looking for more amenities. That place would be substantially better for you. And I've done, you know, I'm at college fairs and I seem like, oh, I'm looking for this communications degree program. I'm looking to be in a great bank to do that. So I, I think we have to do more of that and mm-hmm. support each other. 
to ensure those things. On a, on a, on a personal note, I, I I failed to ask this earlier, but how do you how do you balance? How do you wear all these hats as a father? Mm-hmm. As a husband, as a president of university, as an advocate for students, for faculty, alumni, you're bringing in money, you're recruiting. How do you balance? Can you give like one or two tips on how do you balance? That's a, that's a, that's a great question. I, let me say first, I'm, I'm blessed to have a strong team around me. You know, I have a good team that that that, that works their tail off. That's that's one. And um, secondly, I'm um, more abundantly blessed to have a a, a spouse. A wife that um that that's so supportive who believes in the work that i do who's who's truly a a helpmate you know um within that who's able to you know uh understand the sacrifice her own personal career sometime to ensure that you know i'm able to do that and i um working on having a understanding daughter because that's where the challenge happens um where she you know dad is gone a lot and the question is you know why and so, um, and to be completely honest, that's the area when I talk about having that support mechanism and support cast there, I, that's the area I struggle with. Um, I, I recently did my evaluation with my board and I was clear with them. That's something I struggle. I don't, I don't do a good job of balance. That's what I tell my team. Do as I say, not as I do, mm-hmm. um, you know, as it relates to, to this, because I am, I, I, I I'm. And it's in full confession, I'm a workaholic, you know. And so I think it's like one of my staff members said tonight, I mean, this morning I sent an email and it was, you know, 3.43 in the morning. And they're like, um, why are you send an email at 3.43? And so I had to catch myself because they're like, you know, we feel like that we have to be up, you know, that early or have to be at work late. And so I, I'm, I just I'm, I'm trying to learn a better sense of balance because I haven't done a good job at that. Mm. And on, on that note, the last question of the future round is when it's all said and done, how would you like to be remembered personally? Wow. Great question. Um, I, I think it's, you know, everything I do, it's, it's less about me, more about others, you know? And so I want to be, if, if I can be remembered for anything is that, 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 that I was a servant leader that was un unwilling and unapologetic about my faith and unwilling to compromise my character, my integrity, you know, and so, um, and created and and became a voice for the unvoiced and, um, allow people to have access and opportunities that historically may not had access and opportunities. Um, if, if otherwise didn't provide that opportunity form, I, I am a, um, when I say true essence of a transformational servant leader, mm-hmm. um, I am, people say it all the time, it's just not about me, man. Where my, where my glory happens is when I see, you know, a student walk across the stage, when I see a student that I, brother, I had a conversation with 15 minutes ago about, um, you know, not in a degrading way, his pants are down and I whisper in his ear and tell him, something then I see him 15 minutes later and he see me immediately without me having to have a conversation those pants are pulled up and you know so it's just really helping people be the best that they can possibly be oh man that's powerful that's powerful that's powerful so our last rapid fire round is called the culture change round and this round we ask five questions rapid fire give me rapid answers and then we close it out you ready man I think so. <laughs> what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Um, ensure, ensuring that your character and integrity leads the work that you do. Mm, great. What is one of your personal habits that you can attribute to your success? I, I think it's uh, not allowing anyone to outwork me. Uh, it's for me, I believe in uh, working extremely hard, you know, um, and um, being the first one in and the last one out. Mm. Oh. What is your favorite book and why? I think, um, I guess as of late, my favorite book, which is where I'm doing a lot around leadership and leadership development. And so um, Jim Collins, From Good to Great, mm, yeah. um, 
it's been it's been one that you know lately that I've spent a significant amount of time or I've read about three times. But it's and I use it as a reference to as I think about leadership and transformation and going to the next level and keeping people keeping people encouraged to understand. So maybe you not be you may not be the best leader in this seat, mm-hmm. but how do I put you in the right seat to be the best leader? Because I believe in finding the best in people. So Jim Collins from Good to Great has been probably one of my um, favorite books at this point. That's a great book. And uh, what inspires you the most and keeps you motivated? Um, seeing students be successful. But, you know, I'll say that from a work perspective. But right now is that my wife and my daughter, you know, my four year old daughter is is my inspiration. You know, um, being able to wake up every morning to see her, to see her growth, to see her development keeps me motivated to strive to stay to stay hungry. Like my boy Biggie said, you know, do it like it's just live every day like it's the first day, you know. And so um, and, and and I'm, I'm a product of hip hop. So I think that's what is, is important for me when I say you know, inspiration. Uh, uh, Jay-Z, um, the great philosopher by the name of Jay-Z mm-hmm. once said, men lie, women lie, but numbers don't. You know, and so how to ensure that those performance measures that people can say whatever they want to say about mm-hmm. the format. But the work speaks for itself. Mm, and with, the, with, with that, with the numbers, you can be as authentic as you want, as long as those numbers are trending and you you changing the culture like you are. So our last question is, and this is, uh, if you were the president of the United States, what is the first thing you would do? Oh, man, I wouldn't want that drama. <laughs> um, I, would not, I would not want that that drama. I, that's that's a great question, man. I, I think it's, I, I, I can't even think to that level, man. That's not a... A headache that I would want to bestow on myself at all, man. Um, I think it's you know this, this is this an interesting time in our country right now where race relations I think you know probably are at an all time low, you know. And how do we find a way if there's a way to unify you know people around such a sensitive, um, unpopular topic and a fearful topic of, of around race? And I, I think if we get past that or through that, then we can talk about all these other things. But right now, it's race race relations in this country is real. Yeah, that is as real. I don't know if there's any think tank, any advisory group, or anything that can really solve that outside of doing like what you're doing is taking it upon yourself and living life in accordance in a way that you want the world to be lived in and letting it kind of transcend through you. So um, that closes up that round. And I always end the show um, with a question about the culture and the show. And the last question we always end is if you could change one thing about society, most specifically the African-American culture, what would it be and why? Again, for me is that I would I would I would change. I just not even really change. Inspire us mm-hmm. to know our worth, you know. Um, and I and I think when I when I say that we are amazing, we are an amazing group of people, entrepreneurs. We survived a ton, mm-hmm. a ton of things from slavery to post slavery to uh, Jim Crow to to today. Right. You know, and so um, but how do we begin to channel our energy and be unified enough as a community to support each other? So with a trillion dollar spending power, how do we begin to let that dollar circulate in our community? How do we begin to teach entrepreneurship to everyone that we encounter? I think it's, you know, for so long in our community, we've said, oh, go to college, get a job, work for someone, retire 30 years. Well, I think that's that's the time out of the old. How do we build entrepreneurs in every aspect of what they do? So that's what I tell every one of my students. I don't care if you're a criminal justice major. I don't care if you're a um, philosophy major. Whatever that is, we infuse an entrepreneurship within that context. So how do you own your own? I think what we don't do a good job of that, is, as we historically did, was 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 have that in our in our African-American community. So how do we come back more unified and understand that? So I was sharing with some of the young brothers and I'll, and I'll end with this. And he asked about going back to Detroit. And so my conversation was a real conversation. I'm talking to young brothers who I know, um, well, I don't know, but who could be be out there trapping. And so I said, man, brother, you, you're brilliant, man. Look, I mean, you, you, you're brilliant in the sense that if you, your ability to be able to, 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 to you're an entrepreneur, you know, mm-hmm. and running a bit, a successful business. Imagine if you channeled that energy in a different way, 
um, you know, those thousands can be millions. Mm-hmm. And those and, 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 and but understanding, being able to see it from that lens and from that context um, to be able to do that. So if we can be unified together, um, support each other and invest in our communities, I, I think that 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 will be game changing. Now, how do we get there? I have no clue. <laughs> but I think you're on to something over there at Harris State University. So on behalf of myself and Minority Trailblazing Nation, I would like to thank you for giving us over an hour of your time, sharing about your past, the present, the future, and all that great stuff. I mean, I really, I'm, I'm, I'm always motivated, but I'm that much more motivated about your journey and what the current works that you're doing for the culture. And most importantly, your team and your staff is as well. So I'd like to say thank you for coming on the show. And sometimes the mainstream media don't want that to be seen. Being a voice and a platform to provide an opportunity for us to to share the great things that are happening in our um, African-American minority community. Amen. 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 So where can Minority Trailblazing Nation go go to find out more about Harris Stowe State University and more about you? OK, Harris Stowe, you can go to www.hssu.edu. And for me, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Uh, Instagram and Twitter are H-S-S-U prayers, P-R-E-Z, H-S-S-U P-R-E-Z. That's Instagram and Twitter. So Minority Trailblazer Nation, as we always do it, we're going to end the show like this. I almost forgot. <laughs> if you enjoyed this show, if you want more of the Minority Trailblazer podcast, check us out at greggyhill.com backslash mtpodcast. Also, you can follow us online, Instagram at Gregory Hill, Twitter at Gregory Hill, Facebook Gregory E. Hill, Snapchat Gregory E. Hill. So we keep up to date on all the latest and the greatest. And make sure before you click out and go do what you need to do, leave a review. Remember, I'm giving five free copies of my book to anybody that emails me a review. Greg at GregEHill.com. All right. That's all I got. So as I depart, I need you to do one thing and one thing only. What is that, Mr. Hill? That thing is change the freaking culture. Good night.